You're listening to the Denver Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by RICO, your local guide for all things real estate investing in Colorado. What's up, Denver? Chris Lopez here. I've got Joe Massey and Lon Welsh in the studio with me, here to talk about a trend going marketplace, which is a declining savings rates among Americans. So Joe Massey with Castle and Cook, a lot of you know who he is, frequent guest on the podcast here. Happy New Year, Joe. You got a lot of data for us. Yeah, hopefully I have some good ideas. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Lon, great to see you as well. Good to be here. Thank you. So what we're talking about today is declining savings rates and how that impacts the overall market. So the U.S. savings rate is a lot less than it was pre-COVID. So this graph that we have here shows the United States personal savings as a percentage of disposable personal income. And at the beginning of the pandemic or just before the pandemic, people were saving about an average of 9% of their disposable income. Well, early 2020, you see that the COVID pandemic occurs and what do you see? People begin saving a ton of their disposable income because they were really, really panicking. A lot of people were. And all the restaurants were shut down. Yeah, and you couldn't spend money on restaurants, et cetera. And it's difficult to see, but there's little red dollar signs. This is where there was stimulus checks that went out. And so you see that occurred three times between 2020 and 2021. And following those stimulus checks, you see an increase in personal savings. It got as high in middle of 2020, almost 35% of people's disposable income that they were saving. Then it trickled down to less than 15. And then there was a little bit of a bump and it goes up to greater than 25% savings rate in early 2021. Well, further right on the graph, you see that personal savings is now down to about two to two and a half percent of disposable income. And you see that purple line there, this is when inflation really began to take off and started to exceed 4%. So seeing that, I think inflation is leading people to not save as much money just from this graph. Do you guys agree with that? So their consumption is staying about the same, but now the eggs cost three times as much, so they're just burning through the cash a lot faster. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah, this graph, for those that can't see, when that inflation line starts in early 2021, it's just, it is a, yeah, it is a, just a cliff going downhill. Mm-hmm. So another important point is regarding savings. A recent poll shows that many Americans would struggle with even a very small surprise bill. All right, most households or four in 10 households say they would not be able to cover an unexpected $1,000 expense, like a car repair, medical bill, anything like that. And that is, for me, pretty shocking. You know, And Lon, you've got some charts up here about median savings. What jumps out at you on this chart? Well, just generally, it's sort of like you'd expect, like people with a college degree tend to have a lot more savings than people who don't have a high school diploma. Mm -hmm. Uh, The higher income bracket you're in, the more savings you tend to have. I I think a lot of those things are probably exactly what you'd expect, but the the magnitude of the disparity is like really pretty shocking. Yeah, it really is shocking how many folks at the lower end of the economic scale really do struggle to save. And and I think inflation uh, impacts them at a greater percentage than people at the higher end of the economic scale. Absolutely. So... The next thing we want to talk about is credit card debt. We are seeing a massive increase in credit card debt. So this is the flip side of what we were seeing with savings. Before the COVID pandemic, you see that credit card debt in billions of dollars is going up ever since 2016. And it goes up to a little over $840 million. Then you have the COVID pandemic and credit card debt goes down rapidly. I think this was two reasons. Number one, stimulus checks. Some of that goes to savings. 
Some of that goes to paying down credit card debt. Number two, people couldn't go to restaurants. People, you know, cut back. People were nervous and became very fiscally conservative, yep. which, which I think was fully appropriate at the time. And you see credit card debt goes down for a couple of years or about two years. And then early or mid-2021, inflation exceeds 4%, and it's almost perfect correlation to when savings goes down, credit cards go up. And now credit cards are approaching $1 trillion in the U.S. And we're going to compare these two, put these graphs one on top of one another, and you see that right when savings goes up, credit card usage goes down, then all of a sudden, inflation increases, savings goes way down, and credit card usage goes way up. So I'm going to give you guys some comments on this, but Lon, what jumps out at you on this? Well, I think people... Facing high inflation, probably tried to make some changes in their household. Maybe I'm going to make food at home a little bit more often, not go out to eat as much. I'm only going to go on a three-day vacation instead of a seven-day vacation. But whatever cutbacks they made, apparently were not enough because it burned through the savings rate and increased credit card spending. Yeah, yeah, I think you're exactly right. And so one of the things that we do here at uh, Cast and Cook Mortgage is we really monitor very closely um, our existing client portfolio so that we can be ahead of any potential defaults, so that we can be a resource for clients. And over the past six months, we've seen a massive increase in credit card usage. So there's a lot of reasons why we might get notified to reach out to a client that they might be having trouble making their payments. Maybe they're looking for a new mortgage. Um, maybe they've got a ton of equity in their property. But one of these is really unique is if the client begins using greater than 75% of the balance, or pardon me, 75% of the limit on a single credit card, we get a notification to reach out to that client, make sure everything's okay, see if they need any assistance consolidating that, or what can we do to help? <clears throat> I got six of these just today. All right, Prior to COVID and prior to this high inflation environment, we were averaging three to seven of these notifications on a monthly basis. Now we're getting anywhere from three to 15 <clears throat> per day. So that is astounding. Mm -hmm. uh, let me try to say this right. So you get an automated alert. Mm -hmm. uh, your team does when any of you like your loan clients, one of the credit cards hits that 75% or greater utilization. Correct. And then your team reaches out and just kind of gets going on. What's the sentiment when you talk to those lenders? Like we see the numbers here. What are they saying? Yeah, really good question. We're going to touch on that a little bit, but this okay. is such a great question. A lot of people are just struggling to pay their bills. Um, and I believe that's on the next slide here. Yeah. So what do people traditionally use credit cards for? Vacations, appliances, back to school, emergencies, big purchases. What's the sentiment that we're getting on these phone calls? What are people using their credit cards for? Gas and groceries. So they're using to pay their bills right now, not not the that's bigger exactly expenses. Right. Either wow. They, either they can't or they won't cut their personal consumption yeah. enough, fast enough. Yeah. So my guess is that the people in the higher income bands, you know, they had enough slack where they could absorb some of the inflation, plus they could make some substitutions. I'm only going to go out to eat once a week instead of three times a week, and they were able to balance their budget out so the savings stayed constant and the credit cards didn't go up. But if you're in the bottom 30% of income, you can't crush your spending enough because, yep. you you know, if you're commuting X number of miles and you're Ford F-150 and it's just sucking up all the gas, like you can't change that. And you may not be going out to restaurants anyway, so it's not like a substitution there you can make. So I think these are the guys that we're primarily seeing that are kind of getting caught. Yeah, I think if we go back a few slides and we look at the group that has the really low savings, that's the same group that is having really increased credit card debt. Yep. Right, because the, the couple graphs that showed savings rate as a nation and credit card debt as a nation, that doesn't break it out by economic cohort, right? So let me ask you this. I mean, you, you see a lot of these alerts and obviously you know, you know quite a few of these people. Like, 
the the alerts you're seeing, the conversations you're having with like their uh, profile, their income profile, age profile, does it roughly match up with the slide? Is it similar? Any like things that jump out? Well, that's a good question. And I would say you're kind of a bias. You only have homeowners. You don't have renters. In your right. Program. Yeah. I don't have any renters, obviously, but I would say, yeah, I would say our higher, like I, I don't get a lot of these notifications from folks that have four or five investment properties. It's usually people that have one home and maybe they might've used down payment assistance, or maybe they didn't put a ton of okay. money down. But if I've got somebody who had a ton of reserves and they have six investment properties, we don't get a lot of these notifications. Okay. So, so you get a lot more just the, the traditional home buyer. Yeah first purchase type. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So I think it lines up with what you're saying. That demographic is maybe not as wealthy, doesn't have as much savings. I forget you work with people outside of investors too. Right? Right? That's, that's the world I live in. Like, oh yeah, all these uh, all these other clients you have as well. That's one of the cool parts Real of my job. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I see people at all sorts of different things. It's pretty neat. So we have these conversations and they say, you know what, our, our credit cards have gone up. We've maxed out our credit cards. You know, what is the next step? Well, generally is refinance your house. Right now, everybody's got a ton of equity. If you yep. bought a home in the last three years, you have a ton of equity, right? Yep. So what do people want to do? They want to tap into that equity. So a real common conversation, you know what, Joe? We've accumulated $50,000 in credit card debt. We can't keep up with it, but we don't want to refinance because our interest rate is at 3%. Hey, I totally get that. Yep. So the first question they ask me, can we do a HELOC? Sure. And so we look at a home equity line of credit, which I don't think is a great solution for this scenario because you're taking five small credit cards and turning that into one really big credit card with foreclosure rights. And so very few, <laughs> I love how you said that. I mean, that's what, a, that's what a HELOC is, right? Yeah. It's a visa with foreclosure rights. That and is so, a great phrase. <laughs> so for folks that, that have variable income, right? You have opportunities to earn big bonuses. You have opportunities to get big commission checks and things like that. I think HELOCs are great because you can use it to, draw on it, pay it down, draw on it, pay it down. But if you're on a fixed income, if you're a teacher or a municipal worker, you don't have major fluctuations in your income and you want to just use a HELOC to consolidate debt, that's a pretty dangerous way mm. because you're only making interest-only payments. And so I have you know very candid conversations with a lot of clients and about 20% opt for that home equity line of credit, which again, can be a good solution, but oftentimes not great because we said you're exchanging a lot of small credit cards for one big credit card. Well, the next option is people say, you know what? I don't like a HELOC because it's variable, it's interest only, et cetera. What about a fixed rate second? Okay, great. We can look at that. Here's the challenge with that. Interest rates are very high, as much as 10%, 11%, even 12%, depending on your credit. So very few people choose that. And then the third option- Even though it's cheaper than their credit card at 21%. Correct. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, what, what's, the, what's the conversation like that real fast when they're comparing that? Oh man, I probably it's more than my three percent mortgage. Yeah, it's still, but even though it's lower than their credit cards. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to sound snarky, and we might have to edit this out. You would be amazed how many people I see operate against their own best self interest. Well, I believe that yeah. it, it is a staggering number. So logic sometimes doesn't come into play. Don't confuse me with the facts. Yeah, yeah. People get glued to a number like I have a three percent rate, and that's all I'm doing. <laughs> that's all I want to think about. Okay. Um, so the next thing we look at is a full refinance to consolidate their first mortgage and everything into one loan. About 25% of the folks in this bucket choose this option. And this is almost always the best option because it's the cheapest long-term rate. It extends that credit card debt over the longest term. No, all the interest can be tax deductible. All the interest is tax deductible, right? This is by far the best route, but a lot of people don't do it because well, I don't want to go from 3% 
to six and a half percent, that's just a bad move. Well, you have 3% on your mortgage, but you have 21% on this $50,000 credit card debt. Blended. Your blended rate is like seven. This is not going to be six and a half over a 30 year term, but a lot of folks just can't grasp that. And it's deductible. And it's deductible. So 25% do grasp it. And the remaining 50% say, you know what, Joe, we really appreciate you spending time with us. We're just going to work on paying off the credit cards. How often does that work? Well, that's the next slide here. For about 50% that say they're going to pay those off, very few actually do. Some people make extra payments. If Again, let's go back and think you've got a, somebody that gets bonuses, commission income, things fluctuate. A lot of times those people get a big check and they have the opportunity to pass some of these debts. Yep. Somebody that's on a, a more structured income, municipal workers, teachers, you know, salary-based individuals, they the only way they're going to pay those off and make extra payments is by adjusting their lifestyle. Yep. And a lot of folks don't do that. And so they'll struggle for a few months, maybe a year, and then oftentimes they come back and refinance. Um, but at that point, they're usually further in debt, right? Because yeah. they've been using these credit cards for gas and groceries. And so over to the right, we've got this reckoning tab that ultimately they realize they can't keep up with their bills. They'll call their realtor to sell their home. They'll call me to refinance it. But one way or another, they're going to get a proceeds check. If they sell, they'll pay off the credit cards. They'll start over as a renter by you know renting one of our investors' properties, or they'll trade down. Um, I don't see a ton of people trade down, um, but they might. And so the interesting thing, there's still a lot of equity, so they get a really good check at the closing. All right, And then oftentimes, they temporarily pay off the credit cards, start over as a tenant or buy a smaller house, and then move back to step number two and start all over Repeat again. the cycle. Yeah. Or, and that's that's ideal, right? If that happens, that's okay. That's that's a positive thing to, to hit the reset button. The bad thing that I see happen, they fall behind on their credit cards. They ultimately declare bankruptcy, all because they want to keep their fantastic 3% rate and sometimes go to foreclosure. I've actually seen that happen. Um, a story that occurred to me early in my career, um, a, a woman that I met with, she had a rate of 6%, which was revolutionary at the time. Okay, right? Rates were at like 9%. And she had a little over $100,000 of credit card debt. And we could consolidate oh. the 6% rate and the $100,000 of credit card debt, and it saved her $2,200 a month. Wow. She wouldn't do it. She said, I'm never going to refinance because I love my 6% rate. 90 days later, the home was in foreclosure. Oh, that's sad. Wow. It went straight. She rode that 6% rate right into foreclosure. Wow. And I hate to see that. And, and that's part of the message here is if you're upside down on your credit cards, don't be afraid to give me a call and say, hey, I need some help, right? right? There's no shame in that. This stuff happens. It's just a tool to be used. That's right. That's exactly right. So you're talking about foreclosures, and we've talked about the data where we don't expect the wave of foreclosures because all the equity. Mm -hmm. Now, with this kind of trend going on, a different type of debt that you know can get carried over to housing or maybe this you know ripple impact, do you think this will have any significant impact on foreclosures in the future, like all the consumer debt? that impacting? No. And I'll tell you why, because I think right here where it says reckoning, I think they will ultimately call a real estate agent and sell the house prior to foreclosure yeah. for the most part. Because most of them know they've got a lot of equity versus your client before may have been mm -hmm. in an era where there wasn't as much equity to work with as there is today. Yeah. Yeah. There was still a lot, but she was just was married to that interest rate. Yeah. So I think most people will not choose the fall behind foreclosure and bankruptcy they will sell the home and, and probably be upset about it or yeah. refinance the home, right? That's over. If looking at that scenario, that's usually the best scenario if you, if you get into credit card trouble. So the lessons here, 
You know, I hear a lot of people say, I'm never moving because I have a 3% mortgage rate. Well, I get that, right? I, I completely understand that. But inflation forces you, you've got your 3% mortgage rate. You either need to make more money to cover all of your additional expenses. Sign me up. Or you need to adjust your lifestyle. All right. Most people don't have the opportunity to do number one and make more money. And most people don't have the discipline to do number two, right? Most people aren't going to adjust their lifestyle down. And that what that the only other option is what leads to that negative credit spiral. Yep. So Lon, how do we use this as a real estate agent? What can this what can we learn from this and make this actionable for our agents? I think there's a ton of lessons in this. So um, as a realtor, you probably have 100 to 200 people in your sphere of influence that you should be reaching out to five, eight times a year anyway. You might want to just slightly overweight the number of interactions you have with the people who are maybe on the lower end of the income scale. Or if you know that regardless of their income, you have some people who just like they spend every dollar they make. And uh, it's interesting. I used to belong to a nice country club and there was a fair number of people there that had very high six-figure incomes that somehow like would save 10,000 bucks a year. They couldn't even fund their IRA and 401k. They didn't Isn't have that crazy. They spent it all. So anybody you've got in your database like that, some of these people are obvious. I'd stay really close because this is probably happening to them right now. Yep. And sooner or later, they're going to need to sell their house and you want to be top of mind yep. as soon as that day comes. Um, as an investor, I think what we can anticipate is that there's going to be fewer first-time buyers over at least the next few years than historically we would anticipate. The increase in home prices has been so fast and so dramatic. The increases in mortgage rates has been so dramatic that it's very hard for affordability. This means that we're going to have a structural change where there'll be more renters and fewer first-time buyers. So for the people who are thinking about investing, this should be pushing upward pressure on rents mm -hmm. because there's a larger pool of people who can't escape renting. And this whole dynamic that we just talked about in this particular lesson, I think is just going to reinforce that even further. As long as we have high inflation, people won't be able to save their money for their down payment to buy a house. Yep. So if you've got people who are thinking about investing, this is a really good time to be looking at that because everything is in the investor's favor to own a rental property. Yeah, I agree. And a lot of investors are like, well, it doesn't cash flow. I can't find anything. I encourage people, please look at the long term. Yeah, right? I understand it may not cash flow today, but you can A, have a little bit of negative cash flow or B, put more money down to get it to cash flow. But in either of those scenarios, what you're going to get is a property that's likely going to have increased rents in the future, Yep, likely have increased prices in the future, and you have a fixed rate mortgage, which you always have the opportunity to renegotiate and refinance down the road. Yep. So I think it's a great time for investors. Yep. So there's a lot of, th I think a lot of really great lessons from all this. And uh, if you're not an investor, uh, you own a house and you're struggling a little bit with, you know, balancing out your budget, you know, this might be a good warning that although it might be painful to adjust your spending, like honestly, it'd probably be worth taking the pain to avoid some of these other results because that's yeah. what's going to happen if you don't do it. That's exactly right. So Joe, are you seeing like, I mean, you know, you, you see a broad spectrum of, of buyers out there. Are you seeing uh, a lot fewer first-time home buyers coming to you or they're coming to you and they're unable to qualify because of all this extra debt now? Are you seeing any trends yet to align with this from like incoming incoming clients or incoming apps? Um, yes. The trend I see is uh, it's not they can't qualify. It's adjusting their expectations. Mm. That two years ago, they really wanted a $700,000 house. Now they are having to talk about a $500,000 house. right? And so that's more of the challenge. That's hard. Is the, uh, the difference between a seven hundred and a five hundred is big. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. But it's... that's the kind of the payment discrepancy from two years ago versus today. Okay. Um, so that's the challenge. It's not so much a, they can't qualify. It's a can they really swallow it? And that's where some people are saying, "I'm going to wait for rates to come down." Okay, but that five, that five hundred thousand dollar home might be six hundred thousand dollars next year. And if rates come down, congratulations. But what if they don't? 
You know, you can only negotiate on the price of the home one time, but you can negotiate on your rate every single Often you want. As month, every month, every day. So that's everything I wanted to cover, guys. Any questions or thoughts that I didn't touch on? This is fantastic. No, I thought this was great data and just, I mean, tying it back to like the bigger trends. I think that's a very important thing, um, especially for really investors right now and agents because everyone's been, you know, part an off low interest rate environment. Mm -hmm. The good investors, the good agents, the good business people, they can make money and make deals happen in any interest rate environment. And kind of seeing these trends help set the right direction for you said, hey, for investors, hey, it's, it's longer term. Agents, here are some great tips to focus on these clients who do this. So I think it's great data. And I would just really suggest that investors and agents take it and kind of weave them to their game plan. Mm -hmm. So, Joe, thank you as always. Great having yeah, you on. Your it. contact details will be in the show notes. Lon with Ireland Capital, your details will be on there as well. Uh, everyone out there listening and watching, thank you. If you have any requests or interesting trends that you see, reach out to three of us. We love uh, talking shop. So Absolutely. thanks, everyone. Thanks, thanks guys. guys. Appreciate it. Mm -hmm.